Welcome to Brook USA on the Road. Our mission at Brook USA is to significantly improve the welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules, and the people they serve throughout Asia, Africa, the Middle East, the Americas, and the Caribbean by raising funds and responsibly directing them to the areas of greatest need. Brook USA connects private philanthropists with their passion for helping relieve the suffering of working equines and their owners. In each podcast episode, you'll hear a report from one of our board members on the current initiatives for our organization. You'll also enjoy updates from our Brook USA ambassadors, who range from top-level international writers to best-selling authors. I'm your host, Julianne Neal. In this episode, you'll have the opportunity to learn more about Brook USA, a nonprofit, board led organization dedicated to alleviating the suffering of working equines and the people they serve in the developing world. Our guests in this episode of the podcast are Jane Holderness Rodham, Jim Hamilton, and Tick Maynard. Jane was a child rider and became the first female eventer to compete at the Olympic level for the British team. She has served as lady-in-waiting for Princess Anne for more than 30 years, built a career as a nurse, and authored more than 20 books about equestrianism, from boots and bandages to rugs and rollers. If she seems familiar, you may have also seen her on the big screen in International Velvet. Jim Hamilton is a partner in the Southern Pines Equine Associates Veterinary Practice. He has been both Veterinarian of the Year and board member for the NCVMA, He was founding chair of the Emergency and Disaster Prep Committee for the AAEP and team commander of the VMAT No. 3 Disaster Response Team and the North Carolina State Animal Response Team. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Brook USA Ambassador Tick Maynard. Tick is a sought-after clinician who specializes in building confidence for horses and riders. His book, In the Middle of the Horseman, is a study of horses and human nature, and how he, as an individual, may have found himself along the journey. So Jane and Jim, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to speak with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I have to mention, Jane is overseas on a different time zone, and so making this connection and all, it it was like connecting the dots. So huge thanks to Emily and Kendall and Amanda at Brook USA for for helping us get the scheduling worked out. And um, we're just really excited to be here with you. So Jane, I'd like to start with you this morning. You are sometimes evidently called the galloping nurse, but I don't think we can really limit it to that. It sounds like nurse, event writer, author, actress, lady-in-waiting, and we'll get to that in a little bit too. But first, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and how your love for horses started? I think your first partner or partner in crime actually was a little horse named Our Nobby. Is that right? Well, he was he was one of them along the way. <laughs> I had several wonderful um, horses, but um, when I was about 14, I, I got our Nobby as my pony club eventer. Um, he was a very nondescript little horse that um, a farmer had brought to us and said, did we want to buy an os? And of course, at that time, actually, he was still a pony. He was only 14, two hands high. Um, and I can't remember what that is in centimetres, but he was very small and uh, because he was very weedy looking. But he uh, grew um, as we managed to feed him up a little bit. And uh, I took him through from the pony club through to winning badminton horse trials, which then set me up to um, be selected for the Mexico Olympics. 
Oh. So it was very exciting. Definitely. Well, I know when, when I first heard that you had a pony, started with a pony, I had envisioned this little farewell, big fat thing, but it doesn't sound like he was, he was looking like that exactly, but it sounds like he did have some, some real personality and was quite a little character. So yeah, he was. Yes, definitely. Well, and so you mentioned your, your road to the Olympics and all of the things that you did. I mean, you were the first woman to win a gold medal in eventing. I mean, that's, that's an incredible, an incredible feat. Yes, I was. I was very lucky being the first um, British girl to be selected for the eventing team. Um, so I was given uh, all sorts of privileges, I suppose, because everybody thought it was rather unique at that time to have girls. But whereas now, of course, it's very commonplace to have them. But everybody thought we weren't tough enough. So I had to prove myself a little bit. Um, which with three three older brothers, I'd learned to be pretty tough anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, those were the days too when in eventing, you could fall off like multiple times and just get right back on. I don't think it's like that anymore, but I mean, it was it was tough. You were really a trailblazer. So what was that team like, the, the partnerships and, and the camaraderie that you must have had? I, I can just imagine. It, it was a fairly unique team because we were quite strange locked really because I was nicknamed the Galloping Nurse then we had um, Derek Alhughes and the galloping grandfather, who was 56, I think, at the time. We had the galloping sergeant, Ben Jones, who was in the army. And then we had the golden wonder, Richard Mead, who um, actually at the Munich Olympics won the uh, individual gold medal as well as the team. So we were a bit of a mixed bag, I suppose. Well, it sounds like they took care of you and, and looked after you, but you were definitely a trailblazer, trailblazer for the rest of the women. So that's we appreciate that. I'm, I'm saying thank you on everybody's behalf for that one. So, and Jim, you also have a background in sports medicine and that sort of thing. So you've been on the other side of, of keeping teams safe, the safety committees for various organizations and uh, back to disaster response and everything else. But you also have a background, you ran a practice at a racetrack, Belmont. How, what was that like? Yeah, I, um, I started working on the racetrack uh, for a veterinarian when I was, uh, actually when I was a teenager and stayed connected to that veterinarian, uh, you know, through vet school and then for about seven years after um, as a veterinarian at Belmont, Aqueduct and Saratoga. So that's sort of a, that's that, those three tracks, uh, you know, sort of our, our New York Racing Association, those three. It was great. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful training ground, in my view, for, for a veterinarian, uh, mostly because you see such a, such a high volume of horses every day. Um, I, I would go so far as to say I think any, any young veterinarian that wants to do horse work, uh, I think, should probably spend some time at a racetrack. Um, it's that valuable, in my view. Well, and racing has been so different this year and everything, eventing everything with the pandemic going on and everything else. I mean, we just, we've just had here in the fall, Kentucky Derby and Belmont yeah. Stakes and now Preakness coming up, I think is this Saturday. So yes. what are your thoughts on the way everything's going this year and how has that affected something like your practice? Well, I'll start with racing. I mean, I think um, it has left a lot of racehorses um, you know, without as much experience going into the Triple Crown. And that's actually why they shortened the first race to a mile and eighth was simply because they knew that that uh, the three-year-olds that were going to compete just simply didn't have the quote-unquote mileage that they needed to have. 
Um, so it's it, so for that tier of racehorse, which of course is the upper crust, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's been an unusual year, certainly. I think for the rest of racing, quite frankly, I I think it's uh, it's been very very difficult because if you think about it, um, the trainers are are training these horses and charging a, a day rate, and that day rate theoretically is offset by purse earnings by the owner, and and all of that was was sort of thrown out the window this year. So a lot of horses actually left the racetrack and just simply went home and were turned out um, or, or sold or, you know, or, or whatever. But it's, um, it's, yes, it's been a very, very unusual year for racing. In, as far as our practice here in Southern Pines, um, I, I feel very fortunate because other than a little bit of a slowdown in April and May, uh, we we've actually had a, a relatively strong year. Um, the we have a, a the North Carolina um, uh, has we we have a a group of horse trials that we would normally put on in the spring uh, at our horse park here, and and many of those of course were canceled, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, my clients, many of whom are eventers uh, or or hunter jumper, um, you know they they the minute there were opportunities to go out and compete, uh, that's exactly what they did. So we've we've held up, uh, thankfully. So Jane, for you, I, I mean, I feel so disconnected with with where you are. How has the pandemic affected just your daily life? Well, it was um, pretty dramatic to start with because everything was just cancelled. Um, including the badminton horse trials and the Burley horse trials are are um, two major um, events. But um, so many other things were affected, you know, all the catering uh, people, all the bed and breakfasts, all, all, it, it affected huge communities in, in a very dramatic way. Uh, and uh, we were actually comparatively lucky because once we had, we have a horse stud, um, so we breed horses and a lot of horses, mares and foals come to us for breeding. And um, once we'd established a protocol with all the relevant um, organisations that were involved and we were able to establish what we were and weren't allowed to do, we, we managed to uh, sort out quite a satisfactory uh, regime of allowing horses to come in not to be touched by people and, and certain protocols which made our work once it got started um, all possible so we were we've been very lucky really but the horse world in general has has been very badly hit mm -hmm. and is only now just starting without in most cases without spectators right and that's the thing so many of these big major events equitana usa we were to be involved with just a couple well a week ago and now that's virtual so many things are online virtual that sort of thing and um it's i'm just hoping we get back into into some sense of normalcy at some point some sometime soon well the two of you have have had very strong backgrounds obviously you both know so much about wellness animal wellness you both have a, a strong background in working with animal welfare so jane for you it's all the way back to world horse welfare and now brook and brook usa so 
I hear you have a really unique role with Brook USA. And so you were, you are a guest of the organization's board and were assigned to the role by the board of trustees of Brook, the global organization where you also have a seat. And so can you tell me what does the global company think of Brook USA and all that it's accomplished over the past few years? First of all, what's the difference between the two? And then how does, how does that, how does that work? Um, well, I've been on, on the uh, main board of Brook in London um, uh, for, I'm in my second term now. Um, and that, of course, was originally started by Dorothy Brook way, way back in the 1930s when they, she discovered all the, so many of the old war horses had been left behind um, because the owners and, and the army really simply couldn't afford to bring them back after the war, um, which was a very sad thing. And some of the sights she saw as I'm sure many of your members know, were, were horrific. Um, but uh, I actually, my mother actually knew Dorothy Brooke and in fact illustrated one of the books that um, was written by her um, brother-in-law, uh, Walter Brooke. So um, I've sort of felt involved with Brooke for a very long, long time. So it was a great honour to be asked in the first place to join um, join in London, and then of course to be uh, invited by Brook USA was it was a huge privilege, and it's been wonderful for me to see the the great work that's been done by Brook USA, um, and I follow it very closely and can do and offer advice whenever I can, but sadly not nearly often enough. We'd like to take a moment from the podcast to feature one of our media partners, the Equus Film and Arts Fest. Every horse has a story, and it's our mission at the Equus Film and Arts Fest to share those stories through film, art, and literature. The 2020 edition of the Equus Film and Arts Fest has gone virtual, with tickets available at equusfilmfestival.net. On the website, you'll find the 2020 Equus Pop-Up Gallery, the Equus Film Channel, along with information about the tour stops, films, literary chorale, and art. There's also a page featuring the Equus Film and Arts Fest podcast and blog collection, and Brook USA on the Road is one of the featured podcasts. Be sure to take a few moments to browse the pop-up gallery, where you'll find Equus author, filmmaker, and artist web chats. Visit us at equusfilmfestival.net. I came to Tryon and uh, for the World Games, and and that was wonderful, and that was entirely on Brooks' behalf, and that was a very special occasion where it was nice to meet so many of the um, members of Brook USA. Wonderful. So, have you been to any of the other sites? I know that there are Brook organizations all around the world. Do you have have affiliation with any of those as well? Um, no, just Brook USA, but I have been to um, on two Brook trips with, um, uh, I went to Senegal and I've also been to India just last year. And that was uh, very revealing to see all the wonderful work that is being done. And um, a lot of it, thanks to the money raised by Brook USA, helping in different um, ways, whether it's making in the brick kilns where all the donkeys and Mules and horses are struggling with these huge loads of bricks in the absolutely horrendous heat. And um, it was very encouraging there, I think, to see the various projects that had been helped um, and how well they were working. So I really enjoyed that. And a few years ago, I went to Senegal 
where um, we saw some horrific sites um, where Brooke had only just started the work. And it's been very encouraging to sort of see the progress that's been made and how much better the donkeys and mules and horses look in there. I've never seen such thin horses as I saw there. It was just a bag of bones. Mm. And um, really, it's, it's ignorance on a lot of the part of the owners. You know, everybody says how cruel, but it's not necessarily cruel because they've got a really, really tough life themselves. So um, to be able to help both the communities and the animals because you've helped the communities is is really encouraging and has been a great success. And I think, um, you know, Brooke USA's help uh, with its wonderful fundraising has um, helped animals and communities all over the world. Did you find that people were receptive when you when you came in or was what was that feeling from the people that you met? I, I think it was, was generally once they realized how the help and could see what was the benefits, um, they were very receptive, you know, by working with the women in particular, um, Brooke, you know, has been able to do so much by educating the women and then, of course, educating the children, getting into schools. Um, and that, because it's the women in a lot of cases that do most of the work, although obviously the men are out um, doing the harder work, but it's trying to get that message out that if you know it's quite simple things sometimes like just putting some shade you know building simple things or making sure there's clean water available in in the villages and the uh in the areas like that it's not necessarily um a lot of um huge amounts of money that's sometimes needed it's just understanding that actually if you look after the horse's feet um and make sure there's good farrier care or looking after the leather of the what they're pulling and making sure the carts are properly balanced and all those simple things which they've never actually thought of themselves because they've just done it for generations and generations and they've had to work so hard that they've just got no other way of, of even watching and seeing how the rest of the world even can do things. Mm. So it's very sad in a lot of cases. Very, yes. Well, Jim, you've also been very involved with this whole initiative. You're a founding board member. Um, you've you've been involved for a long time. What have you seen Brook USA do over the years? How have things changed, or how have they stayed the same since you came on board? Well, I think I think what I've noticed is that uh, thanks to Brook USA, um, we have we have allowed the members of Brooke doing their work in several countries to be able to do more in more countries, right? So, so I, I would say that the um, success of Brook USA has been to allow for uh, more projects, more assistance, more education in more countries. And uh, as Jane says, it, it, there's, there's no end to the work. Um, it's a question of trying to focus on, let's say, a, a part of one country and getting them to be, to some extent, self-sufficient, right? Having many, many of these countries don't have, have a very small number of veterinarians, as an example. And so the, the actual healthcare providers in many of these countries are are non-professional, right? They've been they've been taught by their father and their father's father, you, you know, how to take care of of these donkeys, mules, and horses. 
And where Burke has come in is is to teach them, uh, you know, better better techniques for for keeping these these animals healthy. And so to 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 an extent, we are trying to we're we're trying not to come in and and do a bunch of work and leave. The idea is to come in and and really sort of train the trainer, right? So so that these communities can now be really truly self-sufficient. At that point, Brooke can then can then move on to another area. So it's it, it's a it's a never-ending challenge. And and as I say, Brooke USA has has done a tremendous job at being an advocate for the work that Brooke is doing. And I am very proud of the fact that we've that we have in a brief number of years have shined a light on third world countries' use of donkeys, mules, and horses uh, to an American public that quite frankly heretofore had no knowledge uh, of the of those struggles. Um, we we are in, in as I'm sure you'll agree. We're, we are a country that is that in some ways is quite isolated and uh, doesn't necessarily have a uh, sufficient understanding of of how the rest of the world or, or or areas of the rest of the world have to live and and use those animals. For more exciting content, tune in to Winnie Tales, Horse Stories, Pony Legends, and Unicorn Yarns, featuring the work of international equine clinician Bruce Anderson. You'll find these podcasts and more at equusfilmfestival.net or on any of your favorite podcast directories. You have a big background in emergency preparedness and and, um, disaster relief and that sort of thing. So how has that work been supported by Brook USA here in the United States as well? Well, I think think we we made a decision uh, early on that it was important for us to uh, support the equine population of this country uh, in, in times of need. Um, and certainly with the natural disasters uh, that have occurred recently, um, you know, we, we, we felt that we needed to participate in, in the response from, from, a, from a financial perspective to support those, those uh, incredible local efforts that are trying to, to uh, keep their animals out of harm's way and keep them fed and 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 give them veterinary service and so forth and so on. So, so we we actually have been quite successful in in partnering with the American Association of Equine Practitioners and other uh, other nonprofits to to put money where it can be best used. Uh, to support these equine uh, uh, groups that are, are, are just in, in desperate need. And, and certainly right now in California, Oregon, and Washington, uh, there, is, there is massive need. And so we're doing the fundraising uh, on their behalf as well. 
Well, I have a friend, I'm in South Carolina. I have a friend who goes out and is a firefighter um, as as a profession. And he just got back from the wildfires. And it's just horrifying to see the pictures and and that sort of thing. And I know everybody just can't go volunteer. So um, would you say that donations, are there other ways people can help besides donations? Or is the donation the biggest thing that, that the general public can do? Yeah, I think I think donations certainly are the best thing for the the average American, the general public. Um, I, you know, I started in disaster response uh, back when we had Hurricane Floyd here in North Carolina, which was in 1999, and uh, that sort of led to getting involved with the with the, the U.S. government in in homeland security. Uh, in terms of, of of deploying as a team to these disasters, specifically to take care of the animal issues that that uh, were involved, and and interest, interestingly enough, those uh, those were some of the most um, rewarding years I think of my entire career, uh, mm. whether it be uh, the World Trade Center or. Hurricane Katrina and the many others. I mean, the, the need for a focused group of animal healthcare providers to come in and really take over uh, temporarily while the veterinary community in that town uh, can sort of lick its wounds and get back on its feet. And that can sometimes, uh, sadly, take, you know, weeks to months. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we, we are a... Uh, you know, as a group, we are certainly uh, well needed uh, when the time comes. So it's it's sort of feast or famine. You know, we the the these various groups train, prepare themselves, and uh, and then when the time comes, they may be out the door in less than twelve hours. Mm-hmm. But 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 that's you know that's years of training, and that's not to say that somebody who who was very interested in disaster response, certainly there are a number of opportunities uh, for them to get more deeply involved. Um, but I would say for the average for the average person, the best thing they can do is is to provide those communities with with well needed uh, funding. One of my favorite, favorite stories of disaster and, and everyday typical normal people who they're not typical normal anymore. Ron and Danny's rescue, um, yeah. Danny and Ron, um, yeah. went down after Hurricane Katrina. And that's how they started with, you know, truckloads and van loads of dogs. And their their places right around the corner from us in Camden. And just it's wonderful to see when when people do that, that sort of thing and how it's how it's exploded for them. But I think you're right. The normal person needs to probably just find out ways of, of sending money for now. Um, and speaking of donations, by the time this episode of the podcast airs, we will have just finished a wonderful opportunity for donations with Films for a Cause that is the premiere, online premiere of Hope's Legacy, a film about eventing. And it is a fun a fundraiser. It's a kickoff for Brook USA's Power of One campaign, which I think is pretty wonderful. It's everybody can give something whether it's a dollar or $10 or a hundred dollars or whatever, everybody can contribute and, and have that feeling of being part of something bigger than themselves. So with, when, when I speak of film and I'm in this conversation, I just have to say, Jane, 
you are pretty famous for many, many, many different reasons. But I mentioned International Velvet when we were speaking at the beginning of the, the episode. So how in the world did you become a film star? And, and what was that experience like? Well, it was amazing because uh, I had done a little bit of filming in a small way before, but um, this was several weeks of filming. And of course, Tatum O'Neill was the star and I was doubling for her. And at the time, she was a right little brat, actually. She was perfectly <laughs> dreadful. And we had to educate her a bit. Um, but she was great fun. And she was a naturally gifted um, athlete, I suppose, because she learned to ride very quickly. And although I doubled for all the sort of serious parts, um, she, she was uh, amazingly quick to pick it up. But she used to boss me around and I had to tell her how to behave and how to say please and thank you and a few other things. So I hope that stood her in good state, as could <laughs> stay for the rest wonderful. of her life. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. So you had, I mean, quite, I looked through the list of all the people who were there. And I know back this, the film came out when I was a teenager and I had huge crushes on Tad Coffin and, you know, Bruce Davidson's all over the news or whatever. And so it just, it must have been really, was, as, as your other experiences have been in a that one must have been a lot of fun. So where was it filmed? Well, it was filmed in a variety of places, I think, because some of it was done in America, I think at Ledger um, Farm, and some of it was done in Windsor Park, um, up at Arena North, up, up, um, uh, up north in England, and um, at Pinewood Studios, uh, some of it. And, and there was one moment when they discovered that the, um, the horse in the film was doing the final three fences uh, before it won the um, whatever competition it won the Olympics um, <laughs> and uh, they discovered that actually it started off being platted having its braids in and the last three fences it wasn't so they had to bring Tatum O'Neill and we had to bring our horses and everything up to Pinewood Studios just because they'd made that mistake in the continuity part so I think it cost a lot of money I'm sure it <laughs> to redo did. that bit. And the, the thing about film, if you're a horse person and you're watching a horse movie, things have to be right, you know, and, and it, that continuity aspect of it, of course, too. But just just the way things look. So I'm sure with all the people that you had involved, there was no question of that. But anytime a horse person, horse people are very critical when they watch film. They would have noticed straight away. Definitely. Oh, <laughs> if it definitely. hadn't been done. So another exciting thing that has been been in your life is that you are a lady in waiting for Princess Anne, who is also a horsewoman, I believe. And so how did that come about? Should we have been calling you Lady Jane all this time? <laughs> no, no, I'm not Lady Jane. I'm plain Jane. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, it came about, I think, partly because I, I grew up with her first husband, Mark Phillips, who, of course, trained a lot of the... Um, uh, American eventers and um, so it was really through him and she suddenly rang up one day and said would I like to be one of her ladies I wasn't quite sure who I was talking to at the time but anyway it started like that and I've been with her for over 30, 30 years now um, having had some wonderful experiences going visiting places all over the world um, I've never actually been to America with her but um, I have been to lots of places and uh, it's an amazing experience because you see so many things you would never normally have the opportunity of seeing and her knowledge of um, welfare and, and both with humans and animals is extraordinary because um, she's involved with World Horse Welfare, which is 
a slightly older charity than Brooke, but um, she's very, very knowledgeable in what needs to be done, both with humans and animals. So the the Brooke USA and the partnership there with the Brooke, um, do you see it continuing? How how do you think things will go in the future? What do you see next for Brooke USA and, and continuing moving forward? Well, I, I hope um, that things will move forward in the fact that Brooke USA will become even better known than it is already and continue doing the wonderful work of supporting the various projects around the world um, in, in helping animals and communities and generally just getting people to understand that if they look after their animals well, um, they will get so much more out of them um, and that everybody will be able to help each other. The humans will be able to help the animals and the animals will then be able to help the humans wherever it is in whatever small way. And I think I'm really uh, so grateful to all the, the supporters of Brook USA for the money they've raised for that and so much more. It really is inspirational. So, so what do you think, Jim, as far as the board and, and Brook USA here in the United States, what do you see as next steps? Is there something exciting in the future? Well, I think, you know, the United States, um, needless to say, is, is, is a very large, is a very large country. And we, there, you know, systematically, I think, Brooke will will attempt to to educate most importantly educate more and more Americans as to the plight of equine around the world and and that's our future the money quite frankly the fundraising follows that education um, so I I see a I see a, a big road ahead of us uh, it's a good road you know um, but I think, but I think the 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 uh, the goal is to is to really introduce uh, a concept, uh, a, a, a problem that that a, bit, a great portion of the world has to deal with. That, quite frankly, uh, the United States doesn't have to. So, so it's you know it's it's a work in progress, I would say. But it's it, but it's good work. It's good work. Definitely. And, and I, I hope to see it continue um, in, in a bigger way, for sure. I think the initiatives that are coming out now, the, you've got such a great staff with Emily and um, Amanda and Kendall. They're always coming up with new ways. I mean, podcasting is kind of new. And so to have that up and just the different other things that they, that they come up with is films for a cause and everything else. It's reaching more people. And I think that's, that's the thing, as we said before, if people don't know about it and they just, you know, see it every now and then up on a billboard somewhere, it's not as big an impact, but you're, you're doing wonderful work. And so I'm hoping that it, we, we can spread it in a bigger way as well. The younger, the younger population in this country, for that matter, in, I, I suspect in Europe as well, um, they get their information in a different way. Um, I have three sons and I'm always sort of fascinated as to how they get their news, you know, how they learn. It's, you know, much of it obviously is, is internet based and, and social media based and so forth. So, so you're right. I mean, I think, I think Brook USA um, is, is being successful in reaching 
uh, a young population that is that quite frankly is is quite keen to understand the work that we're doing. Exactly. Well, I, and I look forward to seeing what happens next. And I would remiss, be remiss if I didn't ask, because of the timing of this, this conversation, Jim, um, this is a strange year in racing, and the Preakness is coming up on Saturday. Now, Tiz the Law was the winner of the Belmont, yep. favorite, but ran second at the Derby and will not be in the Preakness. Authentic won the Derby. And I guess I'm that kind of person that I'm going for like the 50 to 1 odds or the 30 to one in this case. So I'm going for give your beast life. Cause I think I'll, I pick my horses for the races because I like their names. So I think <laughs> give your beast life is my shot. Who are you going for in the Preakness this weekend? Well, I, you know, I think, uh, I think the winner uh, of the last race is probably going to win the Preakness as well. Um, you know, this is the longest race, right? Um, and I think you're going to find that 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 extra that extra yardage, so to speak, the length of this race uh, is going to is going to be a challenge to many of those horses. So I wish tis the law, to be honest, I, I would quickly have been on that bandwagon as a New York bred, uh, as a as a as an older trainer who's anyway, it was it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful story had it actually come to fruition. So uh, that that's my favorite horse. So I'll, all the rest are, are you know, are, are sort of not as significant as, as, as he was. I got you. Well, luckily for both of us, nobody will hear any of this until the race is over. So they won't be doing any of their betting on what we've said. So they can't blame us if that's the case. And so Jane, I have to ask you too, are you in any movies coming up that we can be looking for? No, I'm afraid not. There's nothing coming up at the moment. <laughs> well, there's some wonderful filmmakers over there, so I, I, I'm going to send send some of them over your way, and we'll see see what we can do about that. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, I, I've learned a lot, but I've also had a lot of fun with our conversation, so thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. 100 million working horses, donkeys, and mules support 600 million of the world's poorest people. They are the sole source of income for many families through the backbreaking labor of their animals. Unfortunately, the majority of these working equines are suffering from chronic welfare issues and premature death, nearly all of which are preventable. Brook USA provides funding for scientifically proven, practical, and sustainable equine welfare programs throughout the developing world. We work primarily through Brook, the world's largest international equine welfare charity, which reaches 2 million working equines annually, benefiting 12 million people who depend on them. When we fund training for people and veterinary interventions for working equines, Brook USA effectively prevents and eases the suffering of these animals and ensures better livelihoods for people now and for generations to come. Projects recently funded by Brook USA include construction of permanent water troughs in Ethiopia, continuing education for veterinarians in Senegal, training for Maasai women who own donkeys in Kenya, veterinary interventions in Pakistan, disease prevention and training for animal health care workers in India, improved nutrition for animals in Guatemala, and so much more. We also recently funded emergency relief programs for equine victims of natural disasters in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. 
please help us fund even more solutions to the world's most challenging equine welfare problems. Our next guest is a Brook USA ambassador with an outstanding career in the equestrian world. Having worked and trained under such accomplished individuals as Ann Kersinski, Ingrid Klimka, David and Karen O'Connor, and Ian Miller, our guest, Tick Maynard, is himself a sought-after clinician who specializes in building confidence for horses and riders. His book, In the Middle of the Horseman, is a study of horses and human nature and how he as an individual may have found himself along the journey. Tick, you have a passion for horses, obviously. You grew up in Vancouver in a show-jumping family, riding and training. You even represented Canada in the modern pentathlon. First of all, what is that exactly? It sounds pretty intense to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a sport that's been around a long time. It's a combination of five other, you know, five sports to make up one sport, and it's running, swimming, shooting, fencing, and riding. And the riding portion is a, it's a show jumping course on a strange horse, wow. and uh, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun sport. It's a pretty exciting sport, um, but, but not a lot of people do it around the world. Some countries <laughs> it's really popular, but not so much in, in the United States or in Canada. Right, right. Well, and you grew up obviously around horses. Were were you always the one who was dying to get on, or or just it was in your blood and you couldn't help yourself anyway? <laughs> yeah, I think as a as a little kid, I don't think I was. You know how how some kids are. They're they're uh, you know just drawn to horses immediately, and that's all they ever want to do. You know, my wife's like that. She named. Mm-hmm. Uh, she you know by the time you know she was twelve, I think she just you know she knew what she wanted to do for the rest of her life. I I, I uh, riding was very much a part of our family growing up so everybody in the family road going to pony club was uh, you know normal everybody did that we had horses in our backyard so I rode a lot growing up uh, but I also did a lot of other sports and I had a lot of other hobbies and it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I I found the, the sort of the calling and the passion and the excitement about it to do it as a career and for the rest of my life and uh, once I kind of set down that road it, it, it's become something that's become more exciting and more interesting to me all the time and and there's I think there's an old saying that goes something like you don't really know what you don't know until <laughs> you know you've gotten to a certain point you know like yes yeah, there's there's early on in in the career you start to think you know quite a bit but then as <laughs> once you get to a certain point you're like I don't really know anything and that's when it gets even more exciting Definitely. Well, and and at a certain point for you, it seems like your focus shifted from all the competition goals and everything, not to say that you aren't still doing all that, but that relationship with horses became pretty important. And so shift in perspective to natural, natural horsemanship and that sort of thing. What caused that? Was there, were there steps along the way or you just felt the shift happening? Yeah, I think there were, there was definite sort of eye-opening moments for me, uh, you know, one of, one of them was Karen and David O'Connor being at their place. They're big fans of of interacting with a horse on the ground, doing what we call groundwork. It's uh, being able to communicate with the horse at, at a distance from the ground, and then carrying that over that understanding of the horse under saddle. And then um, you know, then I I actually ended up going to Texas and working for a guy Bruce Logan, uh, um, who has a big seven thousand acre cattle and buffalo ranch, and he's he competes a bit in in cutting. And uh, when I got there, that was the I went to all these places with the goal of becoming a better rider. And I sort of a little bit understood the idea of, of horsemanship, but I didn't really internalize that. And when I went there, I did a lot of things that I'd, I'd never done before. 
Um, you know, we had to catch a horse that didn't want to be caught in a 10 acre field. Mm. Um, <laughs> I started a horse, you know, being the very first person to sit on a horse. That was the first time I'd ever done that. You know, up until that point, I'd ridden a lot of horses that were maybe young or, uh, and, and also older and more mature, but I'd never put the first ride on a horse before. And also in Texas, you know, would go out and would ride and would spend hours in the saddle. And I started to, uh, look at horses a little bit, a little bit differently. And I started to get to that point where problems with horses, instead of becoming frustrating, they started to become interesting to me. And I started to really enjoy the problem solving aspect of it. Um, you know, the same way that you might enjoy like a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku puzzle. You know, when people come to me with problems with their horses, if I don't know the answer, that's even more interesting to me, you know, to to spend the time figuring it out. And that's when, um, you know, that, that kind of shift to natural horsemanship, I guess that's when working with horses, when it stopped being a sport and it started being, um, more of like an, almost like an intellectual pursuit, more of like the interest and trying to understand and be understood. And, and when it, when it started to become interesting in that way, rather than just a sport, that's when I really knew I could make this something that I would could do for the rest of my life and be excited every day about it. Yeah. I I saw something on YouTube and I mean, the first 20 seconds of your video with you and, and your horse and, and the music. And yeah, I mean, he, you're going across the bridge and all, I'm crying by the time I see the first 20 minutes because <laughs> I can see that connection there with you. And so it's got to be something that's pretty special. And um, that was, that was interesting. And when I first read also your dressage in Germany and show jumping with anchors and eventing and with, yeah. with Connors, I'm like, Gosh, what has he not done? So, um, it, it, speaking of what have you not done, how did any of that lead you to Brook USA? I'm sure all of this experience is 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 a huge part of why you love Brook USA. But what was your first introduction to the organization? Actually, my first introduction was I think in about 2004 or 2005, and I was competing in modern pentathlon, and as as part of that. Um, you know, our, our competition schedule, once you got up to a certain level, you'd have to start competing at different World Cups around the world to qualify for the World Championships. And there's a big World Cup in Cairo in Egypt every year. And so in 2005, I was a Canadian guy, not that great, and I was competing in Cairo, and I didn't have such a great competition. And um, afterwards, one of the women, uh, her name is Monica Panette, from the Canadian team, she told me she was going to go uh, to the to the brook. Where, you know, when, I think maybe even the original place where oh, wow. Dorothy Brook sort of started the whole yeah. thing. I think the whole thing started in Cairo, it Egypt. Did. Yeah, yeah, and she was going to go to that, and I was like, you know, I was so like upset about my competition. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go with her actually, and I, I totally regret it now. But it, but the way she explained it to me, I couldn't stop thinking about it i was just like that is such a great idea and i read you know this there's a little book you can get through brook usa which explains the history of the whole thing and dorothy brook and how she started in her her she traveled from england and her husband was a cavalry officer or something and at the end of the war they were gonna just you know just leave all these horses behind and she's like no i gotta do something about it and and hearing that story back then i've always kind of like whenever i hear about um Brook USA or, or their sister organization in England, the Brook, then I, then I always like, kind of like, you know, listen in or start the conversation or hear the connection to it. And then just by coincidence, um, Sinead, my wife's mother, Bernadette, she got involved with it, uh, I think as a board member or, or mm-hmm. helped the dots or something like that. 
And I was like, this is like, it's just come full circle. And then after that, when they asked me to be an ambassador, I was just all in. I was like, this is so, so cool. And and probably one of the things I love about it so much is that when I first heard about it, I asked about volunteering or helping or, you know, I, lo- I loved traveling and going overseas to help them. <laughs> and they just shut me down. <laughs> just shut me down so quick. They were like, no, it's not about getting like you over there to have an experience. It's about taking that money and not, right. and not having you do the job, but enabling the people in some of these countries to learn those skills. Like, we're going to take that money and we're going to not bring, you know, like North Americans over to do the job, but we're going to actually train and give jobs to local people. And it, so it's really helping people as much or more than it's helping the donkeys and mules and horses, you know, and I, it really opened my eyes to that idea. And I, and I love that idea. Well, and so you mentioned Brooke and Brooke USA and the family of Brooke organizations. And that reminds me of family. Now you married into quite an equestrian family. So your wife, Sinead Halpin Maynard is also an inventor. And in fact, I just spoke with you and you were both eventing in Aiken this past weekend, new baby and, and all that. How in the world do you work out schedule? with riding and competing and sleeping and feeding and what is he about a year old now he actually just turned two i cannot believe how fast (laughs) that goes by like you know people say kids grow up quick but i you know he's walking and talking and i feel like it was just yesterday that he was born it's it's amazing to see the development and and one of the things i love about it is my passion for for horses and and how they learn and think has has extended now over the past few years to how other animals um, learn and how they think and how they feel. So you know now dogs and then I'm I'm reading books and watching shows on primates and on dolphins and now I start to see all these parallels with yeah. kids, like with my own son, like how 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 I can best enable him to to learn and grow and become confident and and humble you know and and all these things you know all these things that we talk about with horses making that shift to 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 dogs or to to other animals or to people like maybe maybe only the top five or ten percent is different you know like the techniques maybe are different like you don't put a a bridle on a dog or a halter on a kid but like Mm -hmm. but the things you want like you want their engagement you want their attention you want communication you want respect you want trust like all those things are exactly the same so the 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 bottom 90%, like the entire like part of that iceberg that's underwater, it's all the same. And the fact that you and Sinead both are are working in that same same path, on that same path. I mean, she's also a Brooke USA ambassador. And so um, the two of you passing that on to, to children, I think that's so special. So who was who was the first ambassador, you or Sinead? You know, honestly, I I couldn't tell you. I think we both became ambassadors of us <laughs> same, same time. Partly mine through my interest before, and then I think partly her through her mother. But um, uh, yeah, we're both just so excited to be a part of it. I mean, our whole life, you know, we live on the farm. We competing or giving clinics every weekend, our, and our whole life, our, our passion, our hobby, our income is all based around horses. And to be able to help, you know, other people be able to to have some of that love and have their horses you know, understand and be understood is so powerful for us. Really? And that's Copperline Farm in Ocala? Yeah, we're in Ocala. We've been here about four years. Uh, Before that, we were in New Jersey most of the time. And then before that, I was in Canada and Sinead was in, I think, Middleburg, Virginia with the O'Connors before that. Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret about her. 
when she, and this is going to show my age, but when she lived in Irmo, South Carolina as a teenager, she trained with my trainer, Mary Warning, in dressage, and I'm in Camden now. And so when I heard, I'm going to get to talk to Sinead's husband, I was like, this is, this is awesome because, um, yeah, she, it goes way back. She was a fanatic for horses from what Mary tells me. So I think that's really exciting that the two of you have built such a wonderful life together. Yeah, every, she always, well, when we're driving, if we're driving, you know, past this, she always points it out from the highway, like, there's Irmo. <laughs> yes, Irmo, South Carolina. So, yeah. and her mom, Bernadette, I mean, she founded Brook USA's Dots. So I, I've been hearing all these ladies are telling me about the Dots. And I, she founded the group. Do you know, how do you become one? You know, uh, I'm not sure, but the, <laughs> the, the Brook USA has got a great uh, website. Yes, uh, which, they do. Which, uh, which can tell you about that. Well, I have heard that each dot gets a very special gift, a signed copy of your book. So I think that's a reason enough to join anyway. So in the middle are the horsemen. Um, now, have you signed a bunch of them in case any new members come along? You know, I, I, I did. The, you know, they come in when you order them bulk from the from the publisher. It's a really cool publisher in Vermont. It's called uh, they're called Trafalgar Square yes. Books. And it's about six six women, and they you know they've been in the horse publishing, you know, books about horses, all different aspects like horse care in the barn. You know, people that have traveled with horses, ridden across the country. Uh, a lot of how-to books, some memoirs. Um, they ship the books off, you know, a box at a time, 18. And I think what sure. I did is I, I signed two boxes for them. So about, uh, what's that, 36 books. And and I yeah. think the so I don't know if they got any books left over because I think they've had some more people join since then. Well, I'm going to have to ask because I think that would be worth it. Now, I hear she's also has a beauty line that is a beauty for real lip balm. And hers is bright red. Do you think that red suits her personality? Yeah, yeah, I think that, I think that goes without saying. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it. It really does. Now, I also have to ask you a little bit about a new initiative for Brook USA called the Power of One. I think the whole idea behind it is that everybody can make a difference. You know, and times like this, like, you know, when you're getting ready for a big election or there's fundraising or there's climate change or whatever's going on, it's so easy to think that one person isn't going to make a difference. But really... You know, when you look about at, at all the heroes, you know, all the heroes that I've had in my life, you know, Jane Goodall is somebody that I've, I've just been reading her books. Or when I think about authors, I'm reading some Pat Conroy books right now. Mm. You know, you just look at these one individual people and the, the impact that they have on everybody around them and then on, on the generations after them. It's just like a, a ripple effect that just goes out from the center. And, um, you know, the other thing I love about the name uh, the power of one is that's also the name of one of my top 10 favorite books. Mm. And, and I don't know if, if anybody else has read that book, but it's a book called the power of one by Bryce Courtney. And it's about a, a boxer that grows up in South Africa during, uh, the apartheid, uh, time. And, um, just this one guy, you know, from nowhere, he's, he starts to unite the, the country. I mean, mm. probably Nelson Mandela would be, a. uh, you know, that kind of idea, you know, you know he starts mm -hmm. to unite all the people around him. And this one kid makes a, a difference. And I think whenever we get lost and we think we can't make a difference, I think reading a book like that or watching a video about Jane Goodall or or being a part of this program, you realize that, that one donation 
all their donations, if they get to a million dollars, it's all made up of all these one people making donations. And we just got to remind ourselves of that all the time. Are there any future things? I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, so it's kind of hard to plan. <laughs> but are there future events planned that you know of? Or, or can you think of what's next for you with Brook USA? Well, that is a good question. Um, I do have lots of ideas uh, for people close to me. They know that I've always got lots of ideas. I've got different book ideas and TV show ideas and mm. and fundraising ideas. And I don't think the question is uh, is there is there going to be any more ideas? It's it's, it's when they get bored <laughs> of listening to my ideas, uh, or which one they'll decide we'll, to I, do. I, I can't tell you what it's going to be, but but we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely be doing doing some stuff in the future. I can imagine. In between all of you, I, I, it's going to be exciting, no matter what. Well, what what eventing excitement is next for you, or what other horse events or or exciting things coming along? Well, we have. Uh, you know, this this season, a lot's been canceled because of COVID, right. uh, but some stuff is still going on. I would say the horse shows are being are being really uh, they're trying to re- be really safe and do a really good job. You know, we've been competing about once a month, and you know the horse shows they've been taking your temperature whenever you go on the grounds. They've been making masks mandatory and and announcing it over the loudspeakers. They've been watching for social distancing, and so a lot of horse shows are continuing now. And uh, I think we got uh, a horse show at the Florida Horse Park coming up. And then I think maybe one at Grand Oaks, possibly after that. And then our, our last show of the year is going to be the, the FAI event at the, the big uh, fancy new facility. Well, not new anymore, but at Tryon. But that's going to be exciting. Um, I haven't been up there, I think, since, uh, I don't know, for a while. I mean, the World Equestrian Games were there. Mm-hmm. It seemed like yesterday, but that was actually a couple of years ago now. Right, right, right. Well, I know you're on the road. I, I appreciate so much that you take all this time to speak with me and, and to talk about Brook USA. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your show. If you'd like to support Brook USA and help this work continue, you can donate by texting ORANGE to 71760. 